I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I have developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. As we continue our chronological trip through the Gospels, today we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. Then we'll skip over to Matthew chapter 11, and also Luke chapter 7. This is the New King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. Now, with regard to the chronology and placement of Jesus' ministry, here's what we'll be looking at today. Jesus here is traveling and ministering in Galilee, beginning in Capernaum in this passage. These events take place between the second and third Passover feast of Jesus' ministry. Jesus heals the centurion's servant that's up in Capernaum. Jesus raises from the dead a man in Nain who was already being carried in a casket. John the Baptist, from prison, sends some of his disciples to inquire of Jesus And then Jesus pronounces impending judgment on two cities in northern Israel, Chorazin and Bethsaida. And finally, Jesus has a meal with a Pharisee named Simon. In Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13, paralleled by Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, we read about a centurion who understood his position. Verse 5 of Matthew chapter 8. Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness, There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. Now Luke's account over in Luke chapter 7, verse 1. Now when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant, who was dear to him, was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with him, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof." Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes. And to my servant, Do this, and he does it. 
When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent, returning to the house, found the servant well who had been sick. Now, Matthew's account here is more abbreviated than Luke's. Matthew's account goes to the bottom line of the words exchanged between Jesus and the Roman centurion, who was, by the way, a Gentile. We find from Luke's account that the words were actually exchanged through messengers because the centurion didn't feel worthy to address Jesus personally. It would appear that Luke wants to emphasize the extreme respect the centurion had for Judaism by not wanting to compromise Jesus' testimony. You know, the testimony that required Jews not to hang out with Gentiles. You'll recall the outrage of the Pharisees when Jesus went to Matthew's house where Gentiles were present in Matthew chapter 9, Mark 2, and Luke 5. This conversation between Jesus and the centurion actually takes place in two waves. The first group of messengers in Matthew chapter 8, verse 3, where it says, He sent elders of the Jews to him. Capernaum, by the way, is in the northern part of Israel, on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. So these were probably not the Jerusalem leaders of the Jews, but local leaders in Capernaum. Since this centurion had been so considerate of the Jews there, even, even built them a synagogue, they declared this Gentile worthy of a miracle from Jesus. So Jesus heads for the centurion's house. Not far from the house, the centurion sends out a second set of messengers. Those would be akin to, like, attorneys speaking on one's behalf. They go out to talk with Jesus. These representatives are the ones to whom Jesus talks on behalf of the centurion. The centurion compares Jesus' power over sickness to his own power over his troops. He tells Jesus that all he needs to do is speak and his servant will be healed. Jesus expresses his delight over this man's grasp of faith. So here's a Gentile who actually exercises more faith than those Jews to whom Jesus has come as Messiah. Then Jesus makes an interesting statement in Matthew chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. Here's what it says. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He points out that while Jews, or children of the kingdom, will reject him, Gentiles will come from all parts of the world to acknowledge Jesus as Messiah. Isaiah had prophesied that the millennium will consist of Jews and Gentiles alike in Isaiah chapter 55 and 56, a prophetic doctrine, by the way, that the Jewish leaders, they weren't too crazy about that doctrine. Then we have a resurrection miracle in Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. Now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him and a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. 
Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. Well, the day following the healing of the centurion servant, Jesus is about 15 miles southwest of the Sea of Galilee in northern Israel in the city of Nain. Luke is careful to point out, as he frequently does, that there was a large crowd who's following Jesus at this point. Well, a funeral procession goes by, and Jesus has compassion on the widow woman whose only son was in that open coffin. He touches the coffin and says, Young man, I say to you, arise. The young man sits up in the coffin and begins to speak. Luke points out in verses 16 and 17 here that the people were subsequently very enthusiastic regarding the ministry of Jesus and acknowledging him as a great prophet. This certainly must have reminded them of Elijah back in 1 Kings chapter 17 and and Elisha back in 2 Kings chapter 4. That's when they had worked similar resurrection miracles themselves. Then we find in our next section of Scripture, Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 19, paralleled by Luke chapter 7, verses 18 to 35, that John the Baptist sends messengers to check Jesus out. First, Matthew chapter 11, verse 1. Now it came to pass, when Jesus finished commanding his twelve disciples, that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet, for this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. Now over to Luke's account of the very same incident. In Luke chapter 7, beginning with verse 18. 
Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And that very hour he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. When the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see, a man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, among those born of women there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And the Lord said, To what then shall I liken the men of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners." but wisdom is justified by all her children. Well, we see in these two accounts that John the Baptist is in prison. So he sends a couple of his disciples to check Jesus out. Who is he? As an interesting aside, John had baptized Jesus and saw the miracle that took place at Jesus' baptism. However, while John suspects that Jesus is the Messiah, John wants a confirmation. It appears that John's disciples show up when Jesus is surrounded by a crowd of seekers and scoffers alike. And they're asking Jesus this question, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Inquiring minds do want to know, so how is Jesus going to sufficiently answer John's disciples without directly proclaiming himself the Messiah before the hostile Jewish leaders who are just there waiting for him to utter words that can be used as evidence of blasphemy. Well, it's pretty simple for Jesus. First of all, he immediately begins healing the people in the multitude and tells John's disciples to report this back to John. John's a smart man. He'll immediately relate these actions to the prophesied actions of the Messiah found in Isaiah chapter 61. Now, you may recall that a year, perhaps as much as two earlier, Jesus introduced his messianic ministry up in Nazareth when he read this very same Old Testament passage. He did so in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. That's when he read Isaiah 61, part of it. 
and that was regarding the miracles that would be performed during the ministry of the Messiah. However, in that passage, Jesus concluded in verse 21 of Luke chapter 4 by saying this, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, while he doesn't read Isaiah 61 on this occasion, he does refer to the messianic activity outlined there. In other words, yes, I am the Messiah. After John's disciples leave, Jesus continues with a startling announcement to those who surrounded him. He says, I am the Messiah. But he doesn't say it in a way that can be used as evidence against him by the Jewish leaders. He says of John in verse 27 this, This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you, And by the way, that's a quotation from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. That's proclaiming that a prophet will precede the Messiah and that that prophet is John the Baptist. Now, it's interesting to note that later on when Jesus is asked about whether or not John is the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy, that Jesus says, in essence, he could have been. You see, Malachi's prophecy looked all the way into the millennium. Had the Jews received Jesus as the Messiah, he would have been the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy. But since they didn't, he was not the fulfillment of that prophecy. Jesus said this when asked about this matter in Matthew chapter 11, verse 14. Here's what he said. And if you are willing to receive it, he, talking about John the Baptist, is Elijah who is to come. He further adds in Matthew chapter 17, verses 10 through 13, the following. And his disciples asked him, asked Jesus, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must first come? Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands." Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. Now, here's the big caveat. Daniel had prophesied that the Messiah would be cut off back in Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. And Isaiah had prophesied that the Messiah would be rejected by the Jews in Isaiah chapter 52 and Isaiah chapter 53. When John the Baptist and Jesus came, the Jews did have an opportunity to receive Jesus as their Messiah, and they had that opportunity to usher in the rule of Israel over the earth under the Davidic throne. It had been prophesied, though, that they would reject that opportunity. And Christ knew that in advance as well. Well, of course he did. Therefore, John the Baptist would have fulfilled the Malachi prophecy had the Jews readily accepted the Messiah but they didn't. So John, consequently, was not Elijah. As it turns out, Elijah does, in fact, appear prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ over in Revelation chapter 11, verse 3. And by the way, that event will fulfill the criteria referenced by Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 as well. Now, if you'd like more detail on this issue of John the Baptist being Elijah, Then I've written an article entitled, Was John the Baptist Elijah? Clever name, huh? And uh, you can also find that on the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today or look under the topic section of BibleTrack.org for that article. So when the day was over, how did the Jewish leaders respond to Jesus? Well, 
Luke chapter 7, verse 30 sums it up. Here's what it says. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Of course, what did we expect? But they did walk away without evidence to convict Jesus of anything. It's further interesting to note that Luke tells us in verse 29, And all the people that heard him and the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. It was only these self-centered Jewish leaders that rejected. Hey, did you catch that phrase? Notice again those words, having been baptized with the baptism of John. The Greek verb there is an aorist passive participle. Being aorist and passive in form, it points to a time when these folks had already been baptized by John's baptism. There's not really any evidence that any baptizing with John's baptism was done on this particular day. John the Baptist's description of his baptism, by the way, is found in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. Here's what he said, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. This projected baptism was first initiated on the day of Pentecost after the ascension of Jesus in Acts chapter 2. Now, view that in the light of the baptism that New Testament believers undergo after salvation by noticing what it says in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. When we are baptized by immersion as believers, we're typifying the death, burial, and resurrection in Jesus Christ. And by the way, that picture only became valid after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on the cross and his subsequent resurrection. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 24, Jesus pronounces judgment on some cities. Verse 20. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day." But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Well, these two cities who are mentioned by Jesus here, Chorazin and Bethsaida, they're right next to Capernaum on the north side of the Sea of Galilee in northern Israel. Because of the rejection of the truth, Jesus passes judgment on those Jewish leaders there who reject his message. He compares them to two Old Testament cities, Tyre and Sidon, who were large Phoenician cities on the Mediterranean, not far away and often denounced by Old Testament prophets for their Baal worship. A string of references in Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, Zechariah. Of course, Jesus knew their hearts and the nature of their rejection, despite all the miracles that had been done in that region. With all the miraculous events that Jesus had manifested before them, the people of Chorazin and Bethsaida still remained attached to their old, dead-end religion rather than to receive the Messiah's message of the new covenant, that new covenant being specified in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. 
Therefore, Jesus passed judgment upon these people. As a matter of fact, that judgment message is extremely severe when he proclaims in verse 24, But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Whoa! Sodom! Now, for the full implications of that condemnation, then look at the notes on Genesis chapter 19. Then Jesus extends an invitation in Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight, all things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus begins to pray, thanking God for the fact that everyday people, not the Jewish leaders, but everyday people are receiving the word. Pay close attention to verse 27. He says, Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. In other words, the only way to God today is through Jesus. And that's exactly what Jesus said in John 14, 6 when He said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. Then Jesus extends a familiar invitation in verses 28 to 30. So to whom is this invitation extended? Well, look at verse 28. It says, All you who labor and are heavy laden. We see here that Jesus is making a special appeal to those who are not the Jewish leaders. As we saw in the previous verses, verses 20 to 24, those Jewish leaders, well, they'd rejected Jesus. And then in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50, Jesus rebukes the semi-hospitable Pharisee. And let me just point out that Mary Magdalene is not the woman in this passage. Luke 7, verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and she began to wash his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner." And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. 
You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Well, this Pharisee's name in this passage is Simon. He invites Jesus over for a meal. While at his house, a stranger, a woman from the city, shows up with a box of ointment. Verse 38 says that she stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head, and she kissed his feet and anointed them with fragrant oil. Well, to Simon the Pharisee, this is not only a strange sight, but a terribly inappropriate action as well. But not for the reasons that maybe pop into our heads. You see, it was a cultural thing. He thinks that Jesus, if he's really a prophet, he ought to know the sinful condition of this woman and that she has no business making any contact with a righteous prophet. Then Simon gets a lesson in forgiveness, but not one to which a Pharisee is going to be very open. That lesson is that both Simon and the woman are both sinners, but because the woman perceives her sin and the Pharisee ignores his own sin, she's in fact the one who's the most grateful for the forgiveness. Whoa! So how does this Pharisee take to the idea of being referred to as a sinner here? Well, because Jesus uses a parable to make the point, the Pharisee, he's not able to actually say that Jesus called him a sinner outright. Now, you'll notice that Jesus forgives this woman's sins. What brought about this forgiveness? Her actions? Well, no. Verse 50 says this, Jesus talking. He says, your faith has saved you. It just so happens that her actions were a demonstration of her faith. Likewise, our actions should always be a demonstration of our faith as well. Incidentally, don't confuse this anointing hair occasion with that of Mary, the sister of Lazarus, that's recorded over in Matthew chapter 26, Mark 14, John 12. That event takes place much later, and we know who that was, and it's just prior to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Now, another false identification that's common regarding this woman is that she was Mary Magdalene. It's further conjecture that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. That misguided deduction is based upon the fact that she's mentioned in Mark chapter 16, verse 9. Here's what it says. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. And then there's a similar reference over in Luke chapter 8, verse 2, when it says, And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons. Well, being possessed with devils back then, it can't be linked to prostitution in this verse, by the way. Although we're not told the symptoms of a demon possession, in all likelihood it was manifested with severe physical ailments and not a depraved lifestyle. So who first proposed that this sinner woman 
was Mary Magdalene. Where'd that come from? Well, actually, it was the Roman Catholic Pope Gregory I who identified this Luke 7 woman as Mary Magdalene in one of his sermons back in 591 A.D. Now, there's absolutely no reason whatsoever to believe that this woman was Mary Magdalene. We first see Mary in Luke chapter 8, verse 2, and there she's a follower of Jesus along with other women. Let's face it, I mean, Pope Gregory back then just blew the call. As a result, however, there are a host of Christians today who are just convinced that this woman in Luke 7 was a prostitute and that she's one and the same with Mary Magdalene, but I'm here to tell you, that's just not so. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walton.